0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Climb Inside My Fur edition. It's Wednesday, September 18th, 2019. On today's show, Hustlers is the delicious new movie starring Jennifer Lopez as a stripper who takes revenge on Wall Street. And Constance Wu, I should say, plays her protege. You had me at Distaff Magic Mike. And then Ken Burns has made another epic, epic, epic documentary. This one is about country music, all 16 hours of it are on PBS. And finally, the crazily seductive story of Instagram influencer Caroline Calloway and her supposed alleged, possibly, uh, ghostwriter Natalie Beach. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Hello, hello. All is well. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello. The movie Hustlers is based on a 2015 New York Magazine article about a group of uh, New York City strippers who ran a scam against their clients. They drugged them and ran up huge tabs on their credit cards, then virtually dared them to go to the police. The movie focuses on Destiny, an Asian-American with a young daughter and an absconded baby daddy. She's just trying to make ends meet, but this being America, the ends, they keep moving farther and farther apart. She's taken under the wing or really uh, in a very memorable <laughs> early scene into the luscious folds of j Lo's fur coat. Lopez plays Ramona. A wise, cynical, money-lusty stripper who teaches the kid the ropes uh, then leads her into a dark conspiracy. What follows is a parable about sex, money, transactional lusts, broken maternity, and the 08 financial crisis. I am telling the truth there. The film is directed, I should say, by Lorene Scafaria. Let's listen to a clip.
1: I was a cynical once. No way. Mm.
2: 93. Mm. Oh, my God.
1: Back when Stevie Wonder came in. What well, the Stevie Wonder coming to the for? <laughs> like
3: Casey had him in the champagne room. Swears to God he isn't blind. Wow. <laughs> How come you're so good? I see you with every single kind of guy and... I don't know. It's like you have them all figured out. I guess I'm just a people person.
0: Dana, I got a little... I got a little breathless there describing the movie Hustlers, like it just taxed my <laughs> diaphragm to no end, I guess. But uh this is all about uh taking revenge on the bankers and CEOs and hedgies who've been supposedly according to the logic of the movie defrauding America for a long time now. What do you uh would you make of this story?
1: I mean, I both thoroughly enjoyed and plan to probably resee this movie. And also after all the hype about it. And really like a lot of breathless exclaiming. Out of you know early critics views of it found it thematically disappointing. Exactly that formula you just mentioned, that this is somehow a Wall Street revenge movie, and this is about, you know, women taking it out on the patriarchy after the 2008 crash. I feel like that stuff is not delivered by the movie as much as, you know, the movie telling you <laughs> telling you as much in a voiceover uh, from Constance Wu. Um, that said, Jennifer Lopez is a I would say revelatory if we had not already seen in Soderbergh's Out of Sight J Lo give a great movie performance. But really, this is her film. She may not be the in-name protagonist or have quite as much screen time as Constance Wu, who's also very good. But you know, she just she just really sells this extremely complicated and ultimately completely implausible character who's sort of like a madam from an old western or something, right? Like this big-hearted but also cynical, but sexy, but you know, maternal. Kind of super heroic stripper uh, who could so easily be, as I say, the the hooker with a heart of gold kind of cliche, but is but is actually this this strangely um, substantial and believable person. Uh, it's all happening, as I say, in a world that I don't really believe. And I think what bothered me the most about the movie, although it took a few minutes after walking out to think of it, because the movie is so fun and buoyant and full of great montages and beautiful bodies and fun music is that its attitude toward this this economic transaction, right, which at first is stripping, just straight up, you know, getting money for dancing, working the pole, and then becomes this scam that the strippers work out to defraud men of their money outside the strip club, is presented alternately as this kind of empowering, you know, feminist scheme, and then something seedy and degrading that we're supposed to be worried about. And the movie seems to keep on changing the, uh, I don't want to say moral, but the kind of ethical valence of what the, the strippers are up to. And, you know, are we supposed to be worried for them? Them? Are we supposed to be cheering them on? And uh, I don't think it can quite be true that the 2008 crash changed strip clubs from, you know, utopian paradises of, of writhing in slow motion <laughs> under cash piles to this degrading activity that suddenly had to be rethought into a crime scheme. Right. Mm. And the movie wants you to believe in that absolute division that happened in 2008. And I think I had some problem with the, with the formulaic nature of that.
0: Julia, does the movie want you to believe in that absolute division or does J-Lo want us and Destiny to believe in that division? I'm not 100% sure. Oh, I think
3: the movie absolutely buys into that. Absolutely. I mean, it it really does present the go-go mid-aughts as these kind of glory days of softcore writhing that result in huge payouts and then suggests, uh, you know, through the Constance Wu character's perspective, not through... Uh, the JLo characters telling that um, the clubs after the crash have become these degraded homes to Russian sex workers who get paid 300 bucks or less for engaging in sex acts. I mean, it's 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 very dismissive of Russians. It's it's quietly this very weirdly anti-Russian movie. Um, wouldn't have hurt maybe to have a Russian character in it. I mean, I was really hoping Dana, that you would love this movie and Steve, maybe you will also love this movie. I I want someone here to articulate the case that I've heard ambially on Twitter and read in so many reviews that this is just a glorious film, a perfect film, a triumph of a film. Um, But like you Dana, I found it incredibly enjoyable. The performance is super enjoyable. J-Lo deserves every single plaudit she is getting for this performance which I could spend hours with on screen. But I didn't think this movie had very much that was complicated to say. And it does sort of glamorize um, and, and old glory days of of stripping in an effort to set up why these women need to commit these criminal acts after the crash. And it's not, you know, pure Robin Hoodism. I think it has a morally complex view of the crimes they commit, but it's a little simplistic in its outlook. I think the thing that's most interesting about it is spending time in a strip club where you do not feel like you are leering at the women um the the directorial achievement of glamorizing stripping without seeming to leer at the characters is really hard to pull off i think and i'm not i'm still not sure how lorraine cavaria did it and i admire that about the movie but no i i steve save us i hope you like this movie i i wish i liked it more than i did
0: Let me describe one side of the fence. On one side of the fence, we're being malleted over the head with a a kind of, you know, bluntly delivered parable about the corruption of the banker class um, and how these guys, which sort of sets up your sympathies as well or manipulates your sympathies because these men who are being, you know, slipped a mickey and and having their own money stolen from them somehow deserve it. Um, And I find that movie somewhat, Unsubtle and 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 blunt. On the other side of the fence, there's this interesting framing device in the movie in which Destiny, well after the fact, is telling her story to a journalist played by Julia Stiles, who's brown educated, you know, dressed like a middle or upper middle class, you know, knowledge worker. Uh, And that contrast is drawn very pointedly. And you can tell, even though she has a sort of therapist's poker face, that Julia Stiles, the Julia Stiles character is shocked by how transactional and cold the worldview of Destiny and her fellow strippers was and is. Uh, and, um, And Destiny in turn is kind of Pointedly telling her that you are insulated in layer and layer, a layer of class blubber like Jonah inside the whale. Like, where do you, where do you presume to, you know, um, judge me? I thought that relationship is really genuinely interesting, but it leads to the really interesting question at the heart of the good part of this movie, which is destiny for all of her fronting. She's an extremely vulnerable woman who has a question for Julia Stiles, for the journalist, and that question is, was this person, was Ramona, was JLo? lo was that person my friend? Or was that person only using me? When I was like drawn into that fur coat, was that a moment of like maternity? You know, because this movie is absolutely about mothers and mothers being unable to deliver what their children need and what lengths they'll go to to do it. You know, was that person acting as a mother figure to me the way she seemed to be at the time or was I a mark was I being treated transactionally and it seems to me that movie is a very subtle and very disturbing one because it asks how each of us is always asking in american society how deep does transactionality go and into how many relationships and the sudden presence of young daughters you know being woken from their sleep by a bunch of strippers partying late at night is celebrating the fact that they've just scammed, you know, a Wall Streeter. And then all of a sudden, a little girl, you know, six or eight year old girl daughter is woken up from sleep and comes into the room and everyone has to suddenly stop. And it's I thought that movie was genuinely po- poignant and and subtle and interesting.
3: Oh, I love that vision of the movie. I mean, I think in a funny way that the movie you describe is nestled within the fur coat of this movie and is also not. I mean, in in our prep for this segment, we also read an article comparing, I think, the film to the the actual 2015 reporting by Jessica Pressler, uh, in which it suggested something that I hadn't totally occurred to me from the film, which is that the the Ramona character, whose name in real life I think was Samantha Um, was old, was very old for a stripper. And so by taking a young ingenue under her fur coat and performing writhing dual dances for some of her longtime clients, she was able to keep the money flowing to her while attracting them with fresher bait, for lack of a better term. Um, And that sense of how, of why she would have needed the Destiny character in the early scenes it just seems like benevolent in this movie and i didn't see you know as much of the desperation i mean you you see JLo's entrance i think we should say nothing about it other than that it is like perhaps the most glorious entrance into a film that i've ever seen and whatever <laughs> quibbles and qualms we have about this movie like you should go see it just for that it's Incredible, um, right? Right down to just, the
1: song that goes with it, which I also won't spoil. But it's it's perfectly scored, as so much of the movie is.
3: It's so fun and so good, and and you know, God bless J Lo and her every quadricep and gluteus. But um, <laughs> you know, the 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 that entrance is not the entrance of an aging stripper who's a little bit sharky and looking for an ingenue to. Help keep the flame alive. Like, why would anyone in that club not just be like, "Sure, J Lo, come on over." Oh, you want to bring some some young demure cookie? Okay, fine. Like, it's not like, "Ooh, I need." There's not the sense that she needs something from the younger women in the club, um, you know, until they get to the to the post apocalyptic after. So, I wish that I thought the movie were as complicated as the thing you describe. I'm not sure that it is.
1: Yeah, Steve, about the friendship between these two main characters, between Constance Wu's character and Jennifer Lopez's, I mean, I also felt that the movie wanted to have it its same double-dealing relationship to their friendship as it did to the economic question that I was talking about earlier in the sense that, you know, there would seem to be these real rifts that come between them at certain moments, but this movie is always ready for another warm shopping montage or, you know, glowing opening Christmas present scene. I mean, yeah. it's it's very yeah. warm-hearted, which I appreciate about it, but I feel like it doesn't want to ask hard questions about their friendship in a way. And even at points in the movie after you think, oh, now is the definitive break, you know, and they've really kind of gotten to the bottom of the transactionality of their relationship, you know, there'll be three more teary reunions after that. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. It's a crowd-pleasing movie made about women by a woman, Laureen Scafaria the director, for a female audience largely, which is apparently what helped it have such a fantastic weekend at the box office. And all that is so worthy of warm-hearted, bubbly positivity that, you know, I feel feel like a crank saying why isn't this movie more depressing <laughs> essentially. It's fine that it is the movie that it is, but uh but I just think those moments when it kind of faints toward, you know, depth or or sort of socioeconomic analysis are its weakest.
0: Mm, you know, but there, one thing I'll say before we, we move move along, there have been, I think a lot of movies unconsciously or semi-consciously reflect the 08, you know, crisis and the aftermath of the 08 crisis. But very few really take it on directly. I mean, I was surprised watching this movie how few movies we've seen over the last 10 or so years that just directly, I mean, other than The Big Short and a couple of other obvious exceptions, that really just directly take on the fact that a tiny, subset of you know Amer- uh, of the american economy basically defrauded the rest of us and I, I like that bluntness in the movie
3: i feel like we've seen so many movies about that not that we've necessarily seen all the movies that should be made about that yeah. And, you know what's the the one about the homes or the balloons in Florida big short um margin Magic call Mike, as you and I have argued margin call i do i would love to see this i definitely want to see it again i mean that's that's one thing i will say about it i'm not so confident of its middlingness or uncomplicatedness that i don't want to see it again and and see what i think about it on a second viewing and i would really like A doubleheader of this and Magic Mike, which are essentially the same story of economic crash uh, changes the relationship of working class individuals to stripping. Um, And I think it would be really interesting to look at them side by side.
1: Can I lodge one more teeny complaint about this movie? If you go in really excited about Cardi B and Lizzo, who have been advertised heavily as being part of the movie, I mean, that ad is inescapable that implies that you're just going to have, you know, rappers bursting the seams of this movie. It's not really the case. They only appear at the beginning and have very short scenes, but are extremely charming and make you wish that there was a spinoff just about their characters. The very first time you see Lizzo, she's playing the flute in the stripper's dressing room, which is just so charming and endearing.
0: Mm. All right. The movie's hustlers. We kind of split on it, but uh, kind of all want to see it again, which is always an interesting tell. But uh, we'd love to hear what you think about this one. Um, All right. Moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, now is uh, when we typically talk about our business. Uh, Dana, what do you got?
1: Yes, Steve, the business this week. We have uh, live shows coming up, as we talked about last week. And there's a little bit more information now about these two live shows in L.A. and in Vancouver this November. It will be November 13th in L.A. at the Barnsdall Gallery Theater at Barnsdall Art Park. And the Vancouver show will be November 15th, two days later, at the Granville Island Stage. You can find out more information about these shows and get your tickets at slate.com slash live. So we really hope to see you in L.A. and Vancouver. Secondly, in Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about the late photographer Robert Frank, who died last week, just not quite in time for us to get it together to discuss him. But we wanted to talk about Robert Frank's legacy in American photography with Fred Kaplan, who wrote about Frank last week for Slate. So to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program And help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. If you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, Steve, what's next?
0: Ken Burns, the non-fiction, epic-length bard of all things Americana, has given us a PBS documentary on jazz and baseball, and now has turned his sights to country music, appearing so inevitable it kind of writes itself, but not in a bad way, not entirely. It's an eight-part, 16-hour omnibus about a music that began i mean this is to me the most interesting thing about it it sort of began everywhere i mean the wonderful revelation of uh, how mongrel this music was in its origins the banjo comes from africa the fiddle from england Scotland, ireland wales uh come together to form a music built out of spirituals hymns minstrel tunes ancient ballads the lusts of saturday night and the repentance of sunday morning as the documentary makes clear anyway it's a fully American brew. Uh, This is a technology story, a copyright story, a demographic story, an economic story, a race story, and a money story. But above all, it's the story of Americans telling their own story to themselves and providing themselves their own solace in music. Let's listen to a clip.
3: At the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention, Carson found his biggest audiences, Each year, several thousand people came to hear music that reminded them of simpler times and the
2: rural homes of their past. Going to a dance was sort of like going back home to mamas or to grandmas for Thanksgiving. Country music is full of songs about the little old log cabins that people have never lived in, the old country church that people have never attended. But it spoke for a lot of people who were being forgotten, or felt they were being forgotten. Country's staple, above all, is nostalgia—just a heartening back to the older way of life, either real or imagined.
0: All right. Well, we're joined by Carl Wilson, a uh, music uh, critic for Slate. Hey, Carl, welcome back. Hi, everybody. So, Carl, the first—you the, know—the first episode of this, you know ginormous documentary really gets us up to, um, what, uh, Roseanne Cash calls the bedrock moment, the really foundational moment, uh, upon which all of country music has been built since, which is the simultaneous emergence of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. This is, as the documentary says, lightning really striking twice in the same location. That is kind of an amazing, uh, turning point in the history of popular music. Maybe, maybe, maybe begin there
2: yeah well what they're talking about there in the documentary is um this um basically what we would call an a&r guy now um from a record company called OK, um who went out to uh rural tennessee and um Recorded what's now known as the Bristol Sessions, um, and basically just put out a call for anybody within, you know, this the sound of, of 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 the advertisements that they were putting out for to come and um, see what kind of what kind of music they could catch, and and two of two of the artists that they found that way are yeah, Jimmy Rogers, who was a uh, railroad worker. Um, who came and and was heavily influenced by blues music, which he'd heard, um, working with with black people in, in, in the railway industry, and you know, and and by also by the sort of rural music that he'd grown up with, and the Carters who came much more out of gospel music and out of the tradition of kind of Scots-Irish balladry. And between the two of them, they really kind of fixed those two sides of of country music. And and Burns follows both of their kind of trails from there. And in a lot of ways you can you can take almost anybody in country music and show the ways that they're the heirs of one or the other or often both of those artists and so that kind of is the big bang i mean it's only the big bang because it's the early commercial record industry and um and so and so technology is determinative and and everything that happens from there on you know is particularly influenced by the development of radio so in some ways you know this story could start you could put the the beginning of this story, centuries before, or you could put it somewhere in the nineteenth century with the minstrel shows, which you know had that kind of combination of the banjo and the uh, violin, and in their own way, this kind of black and white influence as well, which is a influence that burns acknowledges but kind of skips over a little bit um, there 's a tendency throughout this documentary to want to kind of take the less comfortable parts of country history and. Acknowledge them, but not deal with them head on. And that's kind of something, you know, that's kind of a Ken Burns thing that that I think mars the whole series in a way. But in a lot of ways, he gets, you know, the big parts of of what the history is about and how everything developed. Right,
0: Carl. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, a p- pretty remarkable moment both in the history of country music and in the documentary, which is, you know, which is the emergence of the Carter family, um, and this the documentary sort of depicts as the perfect intersection of this music, which had had no real commercial aspirations whatsoever. It really was just solace for lonely rural people. Um, and the new technologies and monies that are, that are coming in and starting to surround it and appropriate it. And, and at this moment you can finally get this piece of American nostalgia or Americana or whatever on vinyl and sell it. And that's, that's where the Carter family emerges. And, and it's, I, you know, I knew that story and I love their music, but just it's amazing to hear people talk about how Sarah Carter, I think this is a quote from someone, Sarah Carter gave birth to it all vocally and Mother Maybelle, this was the real revelation. The guitar playing of Mother Maybell really laid down the DNA of all country uh and western guitar playing uh, to come out of that. Maybe talk a little bit about that turning point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Sarah Carter's influence um, is definitely felt over the years and, and, but I think you could also argue that there are a lot of other people whose, whose vocal influence, um, was more powerful, but, but Mother Maybelle, there's no question. Um, she, she created, um, and probably partly influenced by, um, some African American, um, contacts as well, but we don't entirely have the, the story there, but in her, in her own way, she created at least and popularized um, what what's been known as the Carter scratch, or just. Um just Carter style guitar playing, which is this combination of strumming and finger picking that allows the the melody to be picked out or an a accompaniment part to be picked out in the in the mid strings while there's a the bass and mid strings while there's a a kind of general back and forth strum happening and having this kind of double voiced thing happen and that's that is the foundation of basically you know all of American um pop guitar playing in a lot of ways. People as, as late as like Dwayne Allman have like talked about their her influence. And and that's something that in a lot of ways I think outside of country and bluegrass circles has never gotten its due as much as it should. And I feel like that story is both in this documentary and um, in NPR's um, Turning the Tables project where they're kind of trying to honor the contributions of women throughout music history. Um, Mother Babel is kind of finally getting a lot more Air and and that's and that's a really welcome development.
0: He does he does reach back to the prehistory, going back centuries to early balladry, going back to the nineteenth century and minstrel shows. It's mentioned and and you know sort of lays the basis for what comes at this you know giant turning point with the Carters and um and Jimmy Rogers. But that giant turning point, Carl, as you point out, that's the nineteen twenties, and two things are happening in the country. First, it's the moment when we tip over and more people are living in cities than in the country. So the character of the country is really substantially changing. So nostalgia is suddenly commodifiable to people who feel displaced or alienated living in a cosmopolitan environment. And then the other thing is the jazz age is the dominant cultural force during the twenties and the boom years and I, I, this is what I kept asking myself as I watched it. Yes, there's this early history of miscegenation and you have uh, black talking heads uh, in the documentary speaking to this with deep sense of admiration uh, for that period and and for um, country music in general. But hasn't country always been since the 20s, at least implicitly, something made in distinction to city and black as categories?
2: Well, I mean... You know I think that you can look at that from a few different angles i I think for a lot of the musicians, that sense of opposition isn't there so much and, yeah. and there was a lot of cross cross talk back and forth between black and white music in that way. But this concept of black music versus white music is something that was codified right in that same period of time. And it was partly by um, Ralph Peer and people in the record industry at the time. You know, country music originally was marketed as hillbilly music and blues and um, some forms of early jazz and early R&B were marketed as race music. And those were the names of the of the charts at the time, and and there was this, you know, segregation that that reflected both marketing priorities in the music industry, and of course the, you know, de facto and or legal se- segregation that was afoot in the country, and and that's part of the legacy of country music too. Again, Burns briefly alludes to the fact that Henry Ford um, around this time very much in response to jazz went on this public campaign trying to promote square dances and old-time rural music claiming that jazz was a, a Jewish conspiracy to negrify America um, and that's part of you know that's part of how the the um, early popularization of country as th- this distinct form was made it wasn't it wasn't Entirely distinct from those kinds of currents. One of the things about the the documentary series, I feel like, is that because it wants to avoid again acknowledge, but then kind of move on towards a towards a rosier kind of view of it, it never really grapples with. Until actually, um, Burns gets to the Vietnam period, when I think he kind of understands the politics in ways that in ways that are that he feels compelled to tell the story. It never the documentary avoids the fact that there are so many people in america who have a kind of stigmatized view of country as this kind of backwards and retrograde politically and you know in some ways in some ways they imagine much more than is true racist form of music and and there is a divide around how people see country here and and this documentary both wants to kind of cure that but also not really acknowledge that it's true it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a two step that the documentary makes in that way
1: there's a great sentence in your write-up of the of the documentary, Carl, where you say that Burns shows a, quote, compulsion to wrap every bramble in velvet, unquote, which I love. And that describes not only this country music doc, I think, but just the Ken Burns approach in general, right? That kind of warm, sepia-toned nostalgia toward America's past. And I don't mean to speak of it only with scorn, because his researchers are incredible, right? I mean, the images and the sounds that they dig up and the way that they put that archival stuff together is all Always, always worth watching a Ken Burns movie for, I find. But the, always, the question, of course, is what's being left out in order to evoke that warm Peter Coyote voiceover kind of <laughs> kind of feeling. <laughs> Another thing you point out intelligently in your in your piece on on this whole mega documentary about country music is that why is Peter Coyote narrating it in the first place? I mean, he's he's along with Sam Waterston, kind of the classic Ken Burns narrator voice. But he has nothing to do with country. And these people that he interviews, Merle Haggard has an incredible voice. If Merle Haggard is up to it, I would have listened to him read every single line of the voiceover.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Merle Haggard died since since they interviewed him for this. And it's actually one his presence in the whole thing is one of the things that's great. And, and I, I feel so torn because immediately on a sort of historiographical level, there's lots of things I want to criticize. But I do think people should know that this documentary series is just packed with great music and fascinating people and the and pictures and clips that you know I've never seen many of them the likes of before and and this is the thing that Burns's team definitely is extraordinary at and and nobody who has any interest in you know American history and music and all of these things really should skip it it's just yeah it's these senses in which in which the 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 picture feels partial despite all of that so, so
3: make the case that this documentary's view of race and the country music industry's relationship to race in America is less complicated than it purports to be. Because I found myself watching the first few hours of it somewhat impressed by the way that it articulates, it, it sort of acknowledges and makes explicit, that country music is about a kind of nostalgia that was always manufactured, that was always promoted by people in cities and corporations somewhere else trying to sell you life insurance. Where does the documentary fail to actually reckon with those contradictions that it points out pretty ostentatiously?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's partly you know what you're what you're seeing the thread of through those early episodes, you know, it's based on that quote from historian Bill Malone that we heard in the clip there um, about kind of a nostalgia for a, a rural life you've never experienced in a, in an um, urbanizing America. Um, unfortunately, Bill Malone turns out to be one of the very few historians um, that has a voice over the course of the series. And I think after these initial kind of setup episodes, that the, um, the life stories of particular country stars and, and, um, and particular pockets of development in the music really more and more take over the series. Um, and you, you really feel the absence of those critical and historical voices, um, in a way that I don't think Burns would allow in, you know, if he was making a, a movie about a war or, um, some other more sort of conventional historical period, what ends up happening is that kind of the, the smartest and most liberal and, uh, and in many ways, very charming and worth hearing um, figures from Nashville become the dominant um the dominant voices, and as much as that's pleasurable, you know who doesn't want to listen to Dolly Parton or Merle Hag- Haggard tell their stories and and tell jokes and and make wry commentary all the way along and that's sing great, to you and it is sing miss- a cappella to you. It's, it's it's missing it's missing outsider perspectives in that way, and it really kind of b- becomes a little bit of a. Of a echo of the conventional Nashville party line on a lot of these levels. And so, you know, when they come to Charlie Pride, who in the mid-sixties became the first really um black country music superstar since um since DeForge Bailey DeForge Bailey was a harmonica player in the opera in the early years, who eventually got booted out unceremoniously. Um the Charlie Pride story is told us this really feel-good story, and in a lot of ways it is, despite the fact that early on the, the record companies concealed what his race was, um, and, and it was bumpy for a while. After a while, he was embraced, and that's great, but it's never mentioned that it was another 40 years before there was another Black Superstar in co- in country music, you know that Burns doesn't point that out after sort of warming our hearts with how great it is that everybody became friends with Charlie Pride, and there's a lot of moments like that where you really feel the influence of the like industry official feel good story over over the way this documentary develops.
0: Carl, it is always a joy to have you on the show. You're you're the um, fifth Beatle here. Um, it's it's great to have you back.
2: <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Caroline Calloway and Natalie Beach met at NYU in a writing class uh, for a period of a few years. Subsequently, the two of them were co-writers of the life story in semi-real time on social media of one of them, the more photogenic of the two, uh, according to Beach herself. One was a gifted sorceress in front of the camera. That was Calloway. The other was equally so on the page. That was Beach Calloway then used these stories to turn herself into a pretty big social media star with 800,000 followers. She's a classic attention seeker slash attention getter of the highest order, but also something of a chaos and bullshit merchant, which culminated in a series of well-publicized meltdowns. Now her other secret half has written a kind of tell-all for the cut. And before we really dig in, I'm going to have to read some of this essay. It's so uh, distinctively voiced. It's really launched or seems to be launching Beach as a writer. She turned in personal essays, writes Beach, about heartbreak and boarding school, had silk eyelashes, and wore cashmere sweaters without a bra. She seemed like an adult, someone who had just gone ahead and constructed a life of independence. I, meanwhile, was a virgin with a meek ponytail, living in a railroad apartment that was sinking into the Gowanus Canal. Uh, Julia, let me start with you. You're an editor uh, and a, a gimlet-eyed one at that. What would you make of this whole thing?
3: I thought this was a great piece of magazine journalism. This was a fun read. It was an interesting view inside a, a hothouse relationship and behind the scenes of this woman, Caroline Calloway, who's become a figure of interest. She, she you know, she's an Instagram influencer who posted. You know, kind of mundane photos with long captions about her life for several years. She got a big expensive book deal. The book deal fell apart. And then she was in the news earlier this year when she touted some kind of life improvement workshop that she totally failed to properly fund or plan. Um, And then she posted more Instagrams about having ordered like huge pallets of mason jars and canceling different events that had already been paid for and trying to convince the people in Philadelphia that they should really just take a train to New York and that should count. Um, Just, you know, I think some one of the phrases we read in our prep was a one woman fire festival, which seems apt. So this influencer was of some small internet notoriety and uh, the cut managed to get someone inside the operation to pen this tell-all. And a, a worse version of the essay would give me the editorial squeams, I think, um, if it were the kind of thing that felt uh, exploitative of the person doing the telling, which is a, a, an internet essay type. Um, I think Natalie Beach seems pretty in control of her pitches here. But one thing I've been really struck by is um, Caroline Calloway's response to the essay, which has been kind of sophisticated and generous and um, attention-grabbing and makes you realize why she has been a compelling figure on Instagram and to Natalie herself. And so I thought that the essay did a nice job of allowing this woman to seem this woman, Natalie, to articulate her view of events in a pretty sophisticated and subtle way while also leaving room for the rest of us to wonder what really happened.
0: Mm. I mean, Dana, to the extent the world divides into sort of other directed, you know, geniuses who are capable of manipulating others to their will, and then the Danas and the Steves of the world... (laughs) You know, interdirected nebbishes who prefer to be at home with a cup of chamomile tea, um, you know, crafting pretty sentences. Um, I'm really curious um, to know what you what you made of this.
1: I mean, I had a whole history with this before we decided to do it as a topic where it was sort of the thing that was trending on Twitter when I got back from the monastery. <laughs> so my my reentry into, you know, the media world was just sort of everybody's talking about some influencer and her friend and there's a 6,000 word essay that I'm supposed to read. And I had an actual exchange with Jack Hamilton, Slate's own music critic, asking, do I need to care about this? Do you give me permission to not care? Because he had just written something about it. And, uh, and he gave me permission. He said, this does not matter. It's mm-hmm. a Tempest in a te- teacup. Just ignore it. And uh, But then we ended up deciding to do it as a topic. And so I threw myself fully into that world. And maybe this is some prejudice that I'm bringing from that backstory. But I don't see why this imploding Instagram influencer friendship deserves a 6,000-word essay in the cut and all of the attention it's gotten. A, a part of me just feels like... I, I I agree, Julie, that it's not exploitive in the way that some uh, personal essays on the Internet have seemed exploitive and that the writer Natalie Beach seems in control of her voice. And she's a good writer in this piece. But the story that she tells is one that's so incriminating to both of them. <laughs> it mm-hmm. makes both of them look. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel very judgmental saying this, but it makes their friendship look Based on very shallow values, it makes them both look really weak. And it's it's an attempt to be an expose of, I guess... A culture, a world, a, a particular friendship. I'm not sure how, how wide she's trying to open her lens, Natalie Beach, but it ends up being an expose of things that she doesn't seem to be even attempting to expose. So maybe I'm undercutting what I just said about her being in control of her writing voice. I mean, I will say this, it doesn't feel 6,000 words long when you read it. and uh, And the details that she gives are all very precise. You can sort of see how all this unfolded between them. But mm, yeah. uh, but not unlike what I was saying about hustlers, there's moments where I felt like, well, now their friendship should really be over. You know, now they have really <laughs> screwed each other to the point that they should just have no further contact. And then without quite explaining why or what made her change her mind other than needing the money, Natalie describes kind of drifting back into the zone of influence of Caroline. And uh, and yet Caroline seems like such a transparent. I mean, scammer isn't even the word, just such a. a a scattered person who clearly does not have it together in the least and is, you know, utterly lacking in whatever kind of glamour or togetherness she's trying to project in her Instagram feed. And so I guess I felt like I needed to understand more why I should care, (laughs) you know, why I should care that these two kind of messed up, needy people sort of pulled a scam on a publisher and did a bad job writing a book that they had a six-figure deal for. I kind of felt like, you know, aren't there NYU... Ditses who have book deals falling through every day? Like, why Why, mm-hmm. why did this story yeah. take off in the way it did? Which I guess becomes another interesting question in itself is why did this go so viral and what do people see in it that's so, so interesting?
0: All right, well, I find myself Maybe disappointingly on yet another hustler style fence, but here here are it's two sides on on the one hand i'm the loner who can feel a lot of enemy you know who who especially when I was younger or only maybe when I was younger, could be attracted to people who just had a kind of center of gravity right and um you know one friend of mine in particular was described by a mutual friend who also had the kind of loner's inner sense of. You know, formlessness, um, and also turned to this charismatic person. She said, "Whenever you're with him, it's an it's an event, like it's a it's a story. Like this is pre-social media, long before social media. This was before the internet. And but there was just this sense that something was happening, and it was consequential when you were around this person. And so I think that there is an archetypal quality to friendships like that, where especially because just the way in which You know, nature or the great deity distributes sensibilities and talents, you know, quiet, recessive, socially inapt people are also the writers and vice versa, observers and writers. And so very often this fly on the wall who's sort of half not really there or in the scene is the one who's taking it in and 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 actually really shaping it into a real narrative ex post facto. Um, and that's, it's just, to me, that's just such an interesting combination of wills to power. Like the person who's good at being in the moment, you know, it's the, it's Gatsby and Nick Carraway to be incredibly trite about it. Um, I mean, there are dozens of them and probably better ones than that, but just the, the, you know, the person around whom social existence coheres because they function as a center of gravity and the, you know, nebushy fly on the wall who later actually is able to shape it into something like a meaningful narrative. The extent it was that I was really into it, but there was this other part that, that made me kind of uncomfortable. First of all, why should you care in the first place? And in some sense, the two of them are, are, I mean, that's where it gets really interesting the way in which they're both kind of alike in needing to take existence, um, you know, um, by gaining attention through social media this person the jujitsu by which this person really did seem to be using caroline calloway all along in fact this 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 kind of final move seemed implicit in the beginning and that a lot of what caroline did was was ditzy and 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 kind of epically narcissistic and immature i mean above all just fucking immature right but but none of it was scammy Oh, 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 it was spastic, but not really scammy, or 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 any more duplicitous. As Dana points out, that when what Natalie herself was doing, but just two people using one another, and that kind of undid its force for me somehow. Julia.
3: Oh, I kind of think that's the key to its force. I mean,
0: I I just mm. think
3: it's an interesting piece of writing, and that's why people were talking about it because, as you say, Steve, this this sense of the charismatic friend who makes you feel bigger than you thought you were but who also makes you feel a little funny about it and whose regard for you you don't entirely trust. Like that, exactly. It's archetypal. Everyone's been there. You don't have to to be a self-professed Nebuchadnezzar wallflower, I think, to have been in one of those dyads. And So there's a universality to that. And it's very well articulated, I think, how compelling she is, Caroline. Um, And then there's the particularity of the scene, which is what is it like to be in your 20s when Instagram exists and everyone can make themselves – famous. And that sense of charisma can be compelling, not just to you, the person who's dawdling along in the wake of this charismatic person, but to like the whole world, which wants to fall in love with the You don't have to actually be JLo and have been an out of sight and be an incredible dancer and be Jenny from the block to, to you know, lure us all with your charisma. You can just be some rando who gets lucky in the Instagram algorithm. So the the specificity of that archetypal relationship in a particular modern situation that lots of the readers probably haven't been in personally, um, just for generational reasons, I think is fascinating. And then the unresolved quality of it, where on the one hand, the writer seems very in control of her pitches and more mature than she was at the time when all of this befell her. But on the other hand, she still seems pretty young. And like she's using the writing of this essay to launch her own career separate from this ghost writing, you know, there's a kind of a canniness and a strategy to what she's doing with the essay that I don't think undermines it. I think it complicates it and sort of makes it more interesting. But the the essay itself is an act within the friendship. um, Mm -hmm. And that just makes it a compelling piece to read and think about. I mean, I don't know if you have to think too hard about it. I can't say that I've thought about it for like days and weeks since, but uh, of all the 6,000 words to spend some time meshed in and thinking about, it seemed like a pretty interesting one to me.
1: I guess I also wish that it, it was a little bit more reported from the point of view of how Instagram influencing works. If you're someone who's not quite sure what it means to, for example, buy your base of followers, as Caroline seems to have done, or, you know, what kind of numbers she did compared to other big Instagram influencers, or which Instagram influencers have spun their followings and their success into a successful book, I guess I didn't see it happening in a, a social context of an economy that functions correctly. <laughs> you know, the thing that they screwed up doing, who's who's doing it right? That might have helped me locate this a little bit more outside of just these, these rooms where these two young women are having an individual relationship.
0: I mean, I have to say, above all, this essay made me just feel old, old, old. I mean, I just felt as ancient as country music. I mean, it just... <laughs> what young people you know are forced to deal with now vis-a-vis this shadow or ghost self that they're obligated to fabricate even just socially within their own social circle but in order to launch themselves in life you know it's just it is a remarkable burden and so utterly novel i just you know i mean it's why i think why why rooney's Novels are so powerful in a way because we're only just entering the understanding phase of what's happened to us. And um, anyway...
1: I mean, if if there are people who absolutely loved this essay and can't get enough of the Caroline Natalie saga, (laughs) Caroline has now responded in several places and given interviews about her response to feeling betrayed by her former friend. And there's all kinds of Rashomon style, different perspectives that you can take on this friendship if if you want to dig for some more of it out there.
0: Well, and also, hasn't there been speculation that the whole thing is a ruse, you know, cooked up by both of them, just the latest chapter in the co-written saga?
1: I didn't know about that, but that's that's conceivable too. If so, if they were going to make up a fiction, I feel like they could have they could have come up with some more interesting <laughs> details. <laughs> I guess a part of me still does think tempest in a teacup, but it's mm. a nicely decorated Instagram teacup.
3: All right. Well, the pieces up on the cut. from the
1: nunnery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh get me to a nunnery. It's by Natalie Beach. Uh, I was Caroline Calloway's ghostwriter. It's up on the cut. Check it out. Tell us what you think. All right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
1: Well, in the spirit of the original idea of endorsements, which is to talk about your biggest or favorite cultural experience of the previous week, I'm going to endorse a live show that I saw. And uh, I feel that I'm, I can let myself do this even though it was an ephemeral concert that's over because this artist is now on tour and you can see her in other cities, if not here in New York. It was Joanna Newsom, who we've talked about on this show before and who I think is maybe one of my big uh, musical discoveries from the Course of the time we've been doing the show, um, of of all the musicians we've talked about, she's one of the few who I regularly listen to and have always wanted to see live, but never have. But thanks to our producer Benjamin Frisch, who saw her at the Museo del Barrio in New York last week, he knew that she was playing a week of of solo concerts there and knew that I liked her and mentioned that. And so I went all by myself, uh, which was a very fun way to hear live music. I couldn't find anyone who loved Joanna Newsom as much as me enough to pay <laughs> a fairly high ticket price to go see her. But it's such a treat to go listen to music by yourself to an artist that you you really love. And, uh, and it was just a transcendent experience. It was just her on stage solo with a harp and a piano next to each other and uh, some fun choreography at certain moments when uh, stagehands came on to move the harp closer to the piano so that she could literally swivel on the same bench in the same song accompanying herself first on piano then on harp then on piano again it was kind of a a mix of songs from all of her albums but a whole lot of songs from my favorite of her albums which is one we've talked about on the show have one on me so um so that was a total treat and she just had me in tears by the end I mean she is just like a magical fairy princess (laughs) you know like the curtain rises and there's this beautiful delicate fawn-like woman in a white gown sitting at a harp and you could just be you know you could be somewhere hundreds of years ago even though her music is completely original and completely modern, too. So Joanna Newsom, she's still on tour. You can look on online in October. She's going to play four shows in Chicago, I believe. Then she's going to play a couple in Milwaukee. Then, Julia, she's going out to California near you. I think she's playing five shows in L.A. So uh, if you live in one of those places and you like her music or you're curious about the scene I just described of a lady on stage with a harp and a piano, go see Joanna Newsom live.
3: Dana, I wish Wonderful. I still lived in New York so that when you asked me to go see Joanna Newsom with you, I could tell you no way in hell <laughs> be another person who wouldn't go see Joanna Newsom with you.
1: I'm I was so amazed glad that, that you I could find it. a friend. Yes, the, the the person I live with <laughs> I he, am not amazed. <laughs> he he flat out refused to see her. Like he just plain doesn't like the sound <gasps> of her voice. It gives him, you know, the the chalkboard, nails on chalkboard feeling. And other friends liked her, but just not enough to to pay that money to go see her. But I don't care. I don't care. I love no, her. No, I know.
3: I love it. It just seemed like the best most Dana endorsement because also I love when you say in an episode where we talk about Hustlers and J-Lo's entrance you're like, and there was really interesting choreography, like they pushed the harp closer to the piano. <laughs> <Like>
2: guys <laughs> expecting like
3: kick lines or <laughs> like trapezes. It's like No, they rearranged those instruments. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Oh, did they? But do you understand the mastery of watching somebody literally swivel 180 degrees and play another instrument virtuosically after having just played one instrument virtuosically? It's pretty cool.
3: I love you to death and I admire your admiration for this virtuosity. And I, I bet you if I had somehow ended up there with you, I would have been transfixed as well. But I'm enjoying um making fun of you for like despite <laughs> knowing that I am abstractly in the wrong.
1: <laughs> I welcome your scorn, Juliet. Uh,
0: <sighs> Julia, what do you got?
1: Um I don't know
3: if I have a, an endorsement this week. I think I just have a piece of relevant news and a lament. A piece of relevant news, we'll start with a pop quiz. Uh, guys, who wrote the theme song to the Slate Culture Gabfest? Fest? Nicholas Brutel. Okay. And what
1: theme to a currently popular HBO drama Did he also write? Succession, which is the best theme on TV right now. I love the Succession theme and the whole opening sequence.
3: And what Television Academy Award did Nicholas Patel win for best theme this weekend?
1: Did he win best score for Succession?
3: He won an Emmy. We now have the... (laughs) our, Our theme song is now... Uh, a theme song by Emmy-winning composer Nicholas Bertel because he won an Emmy for best theme for.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! The theme. I did not know that, and it's so richly deserved. And yes, it makes it makes our theme song seem even more special. Uh, so that is my news announcement. And my
3: lament is that just as we were coming into tape this morning, I saw the news that Cokie Roberts had died, uh, the NPR and television commentator, um, from complications of breast cancer, and I just was struck with a pang of. Um, I mean, I was raised by two journalists, including one female journalist, so I certainly had role models of women in journalism even closer to home. But I just think about Cokie Roberts's voice on the radio in the morning explaining what had happened in the world and uh, her smarts and authority um, and the fact that I experienced that in audio and that she seemed like a person. I think she was one of the first NPR people that I kind of knew and was like, oh, what does Cokie think about that? And it, it prefigures so much of my future career of, of um, news sources where particular individual voices and perspectives become trusted sources of analysis and the audio piece of it and everything else. And I just uh, respected her work so much. And um, I'm, I'm very sad to see the news of her death.
1: Mm. Yeah, RIP.
0: Yeah, I rem- I'll never forget as a kid, you know, before there was cable TV and before there were endless numbers of political chat shows, really the original thing in seed form was at the end of the David Brinkley uh Sunday morning show. There would be a little tiny little round table. It was D- David Brinkley, Sam Donaldson, who was White House correspondent for ABC uh, for ABC News. And then um, Cokie Roberts and uh, George Will. That was the original one. And, uh, and it was notable because Will was sort of among the first avowed conservatives to be given a seat at the table um, uh, to espouse his viewpoint. And there was this uh, heady back and forth between them. And I was really addicted to it because there was very little else at that time uh, like it. And from that came everything up to and including the political gap fest. So rest in peace. All right. Well, inspired by the um, country documentary, uh, I have a suggestion, which is um, I'm sure he's in some of the later episodes, uh, but I am a huge fan of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And uh, Wills is known for so many different things. Great band leader, great musician, fiddler, songwriter, singer. But um, but I would say the biggest thing is that he's one of the co-creators of something called Western Swing, this just amazing style of country music that flourished, uh, probably started really in the 40s, I'm going to say. And um, it just combines all of these elements of, uh, it, it It kind of resurrects some of the miscegenatory origins of country music that at that point had started to become somewhat buried and, and really asserts. Country music as this, you know, gigantic potpourri of of uh, of different styles and origins, swing and jazz elements, uh, a lot of w- w- wonderful jazz style soloing mixed in with it. But I'm making it sound arcane. i mean, It's just a, It's great dance music. It's a lot li- great live dance music, and some of the best recordings were live radio recordings that he did that are um, collected uh, in something called the Tiffany Transcriptions that are amazing. I mean, those things are really worth listening to. So, uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys as inspired by the uh, Ken Burns documentary. Wrap on that door all night but you can't get in. Now,
2: here's a man i tell you about it, Tommy. Keep knocking
0: but you can't come in. Keep knocking but you can't come in. Knock, knock. Keep knocking but you can't come in. Get your little let me be. Thought you had me on the rack yeah. and I'd be there when you got back well, all right well thanks Dana thanks Steve you thanks Julia thank you you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today it's at our show page that's slate.com slash culture fest you can email us at culture at slate.com I say it every week I really mean it we get great great emails every week we love them keep them coming uh, we have a twitter feed it's at slate cult fest we will interact with you there our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is uh, Cleo Levin. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner and Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Keep knocking, but you can't come in. I don't Keep knocking, but you can't come in. Keep knocking, but you can't come
1: Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at Slate.com slash culture plus.
0: Popular Photography Magazine ran three just lambasting reviews of it in the same issue, denouncing it as anti-American and cynical, and its technique is sloppy and grainy.